In 409 BC, there was a Greek playwright, and his name was Sophocles, and he wrote, No good ever comes of leisure purposelessness, and heaven never helps men who will not act. And then in 428 BC, there was another Greek playwright, and his name was Euripides, and he wrote, Try first thyself, and after call in God. For to the worker, God himself lends aid. And then in 43 AD, there was a Roman poet, and his name was Ovid, and he wrote, Divinity helps those who dare. And then in 200 AD, or I guess I should do that in the other order, but in 200 AD, a Roman author who, who wrote Aesop's fables, and his name is uh, Babrius, and he utilized the same concept of, of us moving first and then divinity responding to our movement. And in one of Aesop's fables, it was called Hercules and the Wagoneer, this uh, Wagoneer falls into a ravine. And when he asks, uh, when the driver asks Hercules to help him get the wagon out of the ravine, Hercules tells him to get to work himself first. And then he has another fable called Athena and the Drowning Man, and there's a shipwreck, and as the man is drowning, He's praying to Athena to save him, and one of the other sailors swims by and says, while you're praying to Athena, you should move your arms. One of Aesop's famous fables. But then when you fast forward to the 17th century, you're going to find an English political theorist, his name was Algerian Sidney, who originated the now familiar wording of everything I've been saying to you that's been around since 409 BC, and he phrased it like this, God helps those who help themselves. But then you come to the Christian faith. Then you come to the Christian gospel. Then you come to the message of the scriptures. And what do you find? You find a God who doesn't help those who help themselves. You find a God who helps those who can't help themselves. You find a God who saves those who can't save themselves, who are uh, not only incapable of saving themselves, apart from themselves, but didn't even know they needed saving. You find this gracious God who moves first. And in the gospel of this great grace of God's favor and love coming toward us while we were still sinners, as Romans 5 says, it all has a profound impact on how we relate to one another as a church community. In fact, the profound impact of how we relate as a community is drastically different than if Fundamentally, we all believed that we moved first, God responded to our action, that would really impact the way that we related to one another in the room. And so because we believe the opposite of the ancient Greeks, that it wasn't our action that initiated God's saving response, but it was actually um, God's saving response that initiated our action, we can relate to each other with humility instead of superiority. And so today's reading is from Galatians chapter 5. And I say all this because as we read Galatians 5, I'm going to read verse 25 through to chapter 6 and verse 5. We come to the portion in Paul's letter to the Galatians where he's talking about what saving grace does. Up until this point in the letter for the first four chapters, Paul's been dealing with what saving grace is. And now Paul is shifting the tone of his letter to say, Church, in light of this great love that came toward you when you didn't deserve it, how are you going to relate in community now in relation to that? And so we, we pick up the text in Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, 
provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is, is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is God's word. Now, what we find in this text is that Paul is trying to make an application of the great grace of God. And as, as we unfold these verses, we're going to really look at, at three things. We're going to look at the fact that apart from the renewing power of his grace, our hearts are restless. The second thing we're going to look at is that his grace actually returns us to rest. And then the third thing we're going to look at is that when our hearts are returned to rest, it propels something in this community. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that God's law reveals that when our hearts are restless, we relate from the need for superiority or the shame of inferiority. But God's gospel is the good news that gives rest to our restless hearts. And his grace compels us to live in loving community. So those are the, those are the three things we're going to kind of look at. The superiority, the inferiority, and the humility. The, the Paul's kind of juxtaposing these things. So first, let's look at the first thing. How does God's law reveal that our hearts are actually restless? And again, remember the audience. This isn't to the unchurched. This is the, this is the church. Paul is saying to the church, your hearts are restless. Those of you who are suffering from gospel amnesia have restless hearts. I can relate. Every time I suffer from gospel amnesia and I forget about the fact that my life is in God's hand, my heart can become restless. And we relate in a certain way. So, so Paul describes the restless heart here in three ways. You find it in verse 26. He describes it as uh, conceit. He says, let's not be conceited. Now, conceit in the Greek, the Greek uh, word for this is kenodoxoi. Uh, and the reason why Paul chooses that specific word is because he's writing to Greeks, and they would, they would totally relate to the, the depth of this word. It means to be empty of honor, to have a heart. If you're conceited, it means your heart is empty of honor. Now, if your heart is empty of honor, what is that person going to do? That empty heart is going to run around hungering after filling itself with honor. So the conceited person, relating in conceit, is the one whose heart is constantly restless and looking from a place of deep insecurity, right, to prove its worth. And I can relate to this because I've, uh, I've struggled with this conceit my entire life, looking to prove my worth and fill, fill that insecure heart. So he talks about it that way. He also uses two other words. He says, let's not get into provoking and envying. The restless heart can get into provoking, which uh, is to relate in superiority. The Greek word for the provoking, uh, this prokaleo, means to challenge somebody to a contest. So what Paul is saying is, hey, don't provoke each other. So think again of the words he's using. It's so interesting. Hey, don't provoke each other to contests. What would those contests be? I mean, what's the contests in the church? Well, if you read the whole letter again, if you were to go home this afternoon and read from chapter 1 all the way through, you'd, you'd see, ah, it's very clear. This is a rule-keeping contest. This is a who's the most righteous contest. I mean, if the argument in chapter 1 is you're saved by your works, then I guess the contest is who's doing the best works, who's doing the most works, who's the most pious among us. 
Don't provoke each other. Why would you do that? Well, if your heart is empty and full of conceit and you're hungering and having to clamor after your worth, and the argument from back in chapter 1 is that your works are saving you, now the church is going to provoke one another. But they're not going to provoke one another in a positive way, like in love and good works and being very encouraging and supportive. The provoking is going to be, hey, P.S., let's just, you know, let's go right now and find out who is uh, the, most, the most righteous before God. You see this problem? This is what, this is the trajectory of... Uh, of this conceited heart, this provoking. And so superiority is a product of comparison. And comparison is the kiss of death to compassion, which is what Paul's actually after, which is where this text goes this morning. That's where it's headed. We relate to one another in humility, and we relate to one another in compassion and love. But superiority is the kiss of death to that. So Paul starts here, hey, let's not be conceited, and let's not uh, have hearts that are uh, provoking one another. Um, Because notice that the whole posture of that is curved inward. The gospel of God's grace, getting back to the beginning, that we're saved by grace that came to us. We weren't saved by anything in ourselves that caught heaven's attention. You know, we we weren't, we, we didn't start doing things before God and he said, hey, that's some really significant effort on your part. I'm really glad to see that faith. I'm really glad to see that love and works. I'm going to respond now with grace. That's totally backwards. And so uh, because of that, grace coming toward us, it actually gives us a posture of humility that turns outward. And Paul is very, very intentionally saying, if we don't rest in, we don't, if we don't rest in how scandalous that is, then we're going to be curved inward. This is where it takes us. So he uses this other word after provoking. He says envying. Let's not get into provoking. Let's not get into envying. So envying is the other side of the self-absorbed coin. If I'm provoking, I'm relating in superiority. But if I'm envying, I'm relating to everybody in inferiority. Many of us have done that too, right? You come into the church and you're like, well, everybody's somehow more spiritual than I am or righteous than I am or better than I am. Or it's, an, it's relating to life from a position of inferiority. But the irony of inferior, inferiority is it's just a self-absorbed. Because if I think I'm better than everybody, I'm self-absorbed. And if I think everybody's better than me, my focus is still on me in comparison to everyone else. So it manifests different problems, but still it keeps me from loving people, keeps me from having compassion, keeps me from being curved outward because I'm perpetually curved inward. So throughout Paul's letter, we find that there's these two errors that are kind of flowing through um, uh, relationships in the church as a result of the false gospel, which is works, versus the true gospel, which is Christ's sufficiency. So we can lose gospel freedom by trusting in the rules, and we've talked about that before. We have to trust in Christ, not our rule-keeping. But we can abuse the gospel if we reject the rules. And so it produces these two things, this provoking or this, this envying. And so if you think about the letter, for those of you that uh, maybe you're newer this morning or you've, you've kind of jumped in mid-conversation, to give you some context, leading up to this point in the letter, Paul's really saying that if we, if we get away from the beauty of Christ's grace, we'll fall into legalism or lawlessness and again just like the provoking and the envying are two sides of a self self-absorbed coin the legalism and the lawlessness are the, affect the, the community of the church in the same way too because if i fall into legalism then you exist to validate me so my whole way of relating to you is in is is jockeying for position as to whether or not i'm more spiritual than you so it's it's legalistic so you really, all of the relationships for the legalist only exist to validate them. But the lawless person, all of those relationships only exist to satisfy them. 
So the moment that you're, I'm no longer getting any satisfaction out of this, I'm just going to move on to something else that's giving me satisfaction. That's what the lawless person does. So again, you can see the legalism and the lawlessness are two sides of the same self-absorbed coin. So Paul uses all these words here, super intentionally, so that he can, so that he can re- reorient the church to think, okay, well, how then do we relate to one another in loving community and not in, and not in, this, uh, not in this comparison? And so he's... Uh, painting this picture of these hungering hearts, you know, trying to fill themselves up. It's interesting, if you read uh, Augustine's uh, City of God, or even if you've heard about some of the writings that Augustine has done, in Book 14, Augustine looks out at the city, and he says, you know, the city is a little bit like the soul of man writ large. And if you look out at the city, you're going to find that there's, there's really two kinds of cities, there's the city that exists because it's, it's committed to um, the love of God. And then there's the, the city that exists because it's committed to the love of man, love of self. But then as he unpacks it, the cities he's referring to are the hearts. And he's saying we will relate in community to one another, either with the love of God, which will result in humility and community, or we're going to relate with the love of self. And that's what Paul's kind of unpacking here. That's what that hungering heart does. So that's how the law reveals how our hearts are restless. Now, how does God's grace, let's move on now and see how God's grace returns our hearts to rest. Well, if the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you could never live, and then his righteousness is imputed to you, and you are saved and, and accepted before God on the basis of trusting in Christ and his work, not yours, that is the gospel. So if that is true, then that will humble us before anybody. We're not going to feel like we're better than anyone because we know that our salvation was, came from outside us. Our salvation didn't come from anything that was inside us. So now we can relate to one another with great sense of humility. The other thing that's true is that if it is true that I'm now a child of God and I am united to Christ and my union with Christ means that the creator of heaven and earth is now intimately um, uh, connected to me by the Spirit of God, and my life is in his hands, if that is true, then that actually gives me great confidence before anyone. Not confidence because I'm better than anyone. Confidence because I'm God's child. So this simultaneous humility and confidence that can coexist in the gospel means we don't need to believe that we're better than anyone, and we don't need to believe that anybody's better than us. It's just, now, what does that do, if that's true? What Paul's provoking in the church is, now you can have a community that's faced outward, not inward. And he's talking to the church. Of course, we want, we want our love and our outward expression of love and care to overflow into the city, so that we're caring and loving for our neighbor, We can care and love for people who don't share our worldview, don't share our Christian faith, don't share the Christian ethic, but we can care for them, love for them, right? Because our hearts have been set free by the fact that this life isn't all there is, so we're free to give our lives away, right? But, But right here, Paul's not talking about mission to the city. He's actually talking about right here, Redeemer, us, how we relate to one another, and how those who come into this community of faith, how they experience the love and the rest of God's grace. It, the gospel of Christ's grace towards us returns our hearts to rest. And it gives us this confidence and humility that can coexist because God's grace is the remedy for the empty heart. 
The argument Paul is making is every heart is empty. Right? Everyone in this city, their heart is empty. So they will seek to fill it with something. They will, they will make something Lord. Right? As Again, to borrow from Augustine, we don't get to choose if we worship as human beings. We're only choosing what we worship. We don't get to choose if we will love. We're only choosing what we will love as ultimate. And that's what Paul is provoking here. If the love of God is ultimate, then my heart is full, and I don't need to use the relationships to fill myself. The Spirit is renewing my heart from the inside out, and I'm now at rest, and I'm able to, to love. This is what he's, what he's provoking. Because the message of the gospel is that when I was at my worst, God gave me his best. I'm not meeting God halfway. God came all the way. And as a result of that, I don't have a judge over me. I have a father over me. Because Jesus Christ, who's the righteous judge, is my justifier. I'm summarizing the first four chapters here so that we can see why Paul's saying this to the the church so we don't just read it like, okay, let's roll our sleeves up and try a little harder to be loving. Because then we're just going to try, we're just going to be putting behavior on top of untouched motivation where where this is the invitation Paul's inviting the church into this um, place of real renewal, which is actually very exciting and very restful. So think about it. If this is true, what Paul is saying which we, our conviction is that it is, why then do we gather every Sunday? It starts to make sense. Why God's command from the beginning is that every seven days, stop all your work and rest in mine. Why would God command a cycle of rest? Because if the Creator didn't command us to rest, the propensity of our sinful hearts would be to continually live in unrest and what would we do with that unrest seven days a week we would chase to fill the void that needs to be filled so god in his great wisdom says every seven days just stop and rest so that the goodness of my grace and my love for you can reorient you and fill you and renew you and refresh it. I now go out on Monday and live an outward-faced life because you're free. Relate to one another in community with great humility because by the power of his spirit who you're united to, he's actually doing something in you. So the way to think about this worship, Redeemer, as we gather every Sunday, is that it's a response. He's actually doing something to you. We don't think about worship primarily as something that we're doing for God. We're coming here so that by his spirit, he does something to us. It's so gracious. It's so beautiful. And we live from boldness and passion from that mission. That's why in verse, chapter 6 and verse 1, if you look down at it, Paul says, you who are spiritual. What does he mean? Super Christians? Is that what he means? Is he looking at the church? And he's saying, you who are spiritual. Because, you know, there's a hierarchy. Right? Paul, you would use these, this language like you who are spiritual. And in other letters, not this one, but in other letters, he talks about being carnal. What is he doing? Is he creating a ranking system in the church now? Is there, are, should, we have, should we show up and have badges that I could assign to you as the elder, teaching elder in the church as to who's most spiritual? Maybe you get a special badge for that? Is that what Paul's creating here? Not even close. You see, in the context of his letter, when he says, you who are spiritual, what he's saying is, you who are united to Christ by grace alone will want 
you who are spiritual, you will want what the Spirit of Christ wants. They get that from the whole flow of the letter. So when he says, you who are spiritual, he's saying, you who are at rest in grace, you who are resting in this goodness, you're, the, you're, you're spiritual. It doesn't mean you're better than the, than the person sitting in the chair next to you. It means you're resting in this grace. If I'm not resting in the grace, I'm not being spiritual. So there are times during my week when I weave in and out of not being spiritual. So do you. We have those times. That's why we confess each week to reorient our hearts, to say, you know, I want to live from this place of peace and humility and, and being outward focused. So that's why Paul uses that, uses that language. It's so that Paul is calling the church to be ministers of grace from the rest of grace. You think about it this way. If your engine is misfiring badly, and some of you in here are very astute with working on vehicles, okay? If an engine is misfiring badly, the, the modern engine will go into self-protect. So even though it's, really, it's capable of moving, it won't move because its primarily focus is preserving itself because it's not firing properly. So you can put the gas to the floor, but the car will still go 10, 15 kilometers an hour because it's using all of its energy to protect itself. What Paul is getting at the church is the gospel of grace frees us from self-protect, from living life and, com- and living in community as a church in self-protect mode, where all of our energy and all of our space is about protecting our own hearts. And so we're not able to actually love. That's why after Paul says, you who are spiritual, notice, notice um, uh, the goal of this spirituality. He says somebody's fallen into sin in the church. They're doing, they're doing something that's hurtful to them, hurtful to those they love. It's contrary to God's law. It's contrary to the Christian ethic. But they're, they're stuck in it. They're, they're in this thing. Look at the, the goal of the spiritual person. The goal of the spiritual person is not, clearly I'm more spiritual than you. Get your game together. Sold the bootstraps up. Come on. We're Christians. It's not even close, right? Paul, you've got to see, if you read the whole letter, go home and read this, read it, read it again. You're going to see Paul's firing shots across the bow at the false teachers. All through this, bang, bang, bang. Because what are the false teachers going to do? If, it's, if, the, if the gospel is salvation by the good life you're living, then what's the spiritual person going to do? They're going to bang the person in the community of faith over the head who's in sin because they're not living the right life. But what does Paul say? No, that's the false gospel. You're saved by grace alone. So how then do you approach this person who's in sin? You read it. He says, restore them gently. The word in the Greek for gently, it's this word, katarizdo. And Paul chooses that word. Again, all the words matter. You know, and he picks this word because it's the same word the Greeks would use when they talked about resetting a bone after battle. So they would say you, they, they, would, they would reset the bone. Now, if you reset a bone, that's painful. But it's painful healing. And the way that the church is supposed to con- con- relate to each other is that we're not afraid of confronting because the gospel has freed us from needing to be liked by the, this person so badly we would never confront them. But the gospel, but the gospel has also freed us from, from charging into this confrontation in some self-righteous pious you know way um, it enables us to come and restore gently to go you see if we feel we're inferior we're not going to confront people because we need their approval too much but if we think we're superior we're going to be way too quick to confront people to point out their sin because are the reason we're pointing it out is so we can look better by comparison that's what the self-righteous religious heart does so paul Paul orients us to say the way that we're going to relate to each other on the basis of this grace 
is there is a gentleness in this restoration, but yet we're, we're unafraid. We're unafraid to confront because that's what love looks like, right? Think about it. If, 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 uh, if, if one of my boys goes outside and they're, they're playing basketball with one of the neighborhood kids and, and my, one of my sons loses his temper and he punches the kid in the face and the kid goes home and cries to his parent and then his parent comes knocking on my door and says, one of your boys punched my kid in the face. What would the, what would the loving and gracious thing for me to do as a parent? Would it be for me to say, hey, I believe in grace here, so I'm not going to confront my son? Because if I confront him, he might go, Dad, you're so lame. And I don't need that. I need my kid to think I'm awesome and cool and amazing. So I'm not going to confront him. See, that's a weird pick. That's, not, that's neither grace nor justice, right? So the, the, the most gracious thing for me to do would be to confront my son about his sin in a loving and a gentle and a restorative way like I'm resetting a bone. And the confrontation is going to be painful, but the whole motivation is healing. So you see, when Paul instructs the church to confront, when in our comings and goings of months and years ahead, and as we're, you know, if, if you haven't had anybody offend you yet at Redeemer, just give it time, okay? Don't worry about it. It'll happen. Keep your pants on. Someone will offend you. And when that happens, the way of relating to that is in this gracious and loving confrontation. And that's the picture that, that Paul gives. And that's why later in verse 1, he says, the spiritual person will restore gently. The purpose of our confrontation is all about restoration, not retribution. So he, he paints that picture. And then that's why later in verse 1, he says, and keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So see how Paul continually turns it back around? He's saying, mind your own sanctification. That should be your number one concern. I mean, the number one problem with, with uh, the church universal, you know, I'm including Redeemer in that, but the, one of the problems we have is that we, historically speaking, we tend to hate everybody else's sin worse than we hate ours. You know, but if really we hated ours most, I think that would translate out into a different way of not only having community with each other, but also, I think, with those who are outside the Christian community having an experience of Christians, right? If predominantly I was doing what Paul was saying and I was constantly curving uh, curving my attention back to, uh, you know, hating my own sin most rather than, rather than uh, downplaying mine and elevating yours. So the whole goal is re- restorative, which leads us to the final thing. So the restless heart is empty of honor and conceited and provoking and envying, but the heart resting in grace, the gospel reorients us, pulls us, drags us out of all of that, and, and uh, brings us into this place of true, true rest and spirituality where we're able to love one another and, and, and curve out of ourselves and, and confront in a gracious way. But the final thing here is it propels something. So what does all of this that I'm talking about propel in hearts that are rest? You find it in verse 2. The evidence of all of this, the evidence of the, the trajectory of that saving grace starting to do a sanctifying work is that we're bearing one another's burdens. That's where, the, that's where Paul moves it. Bearing one another's burdens. He goes, that, that's a picture, that's how I can know, that's how I can get excited that this scandalous grace that I'm mesmerized by is starting to chip away at the stone in this, this heart of sin. When I'm willing to bear one another's burdens. You find it in verse 2 there. The burdens is the responsibilities and the extremely weighty problems of others. Right? 
And we can't help with other people's burdens unless we're willing to be close to the one who is burdened. And that's why Christian faith is a communal faith. That's why if you go home, you'll find a better preacher than me in 30 seconds online. You'll find more proficient music than we have here on Sunday morning in 30 seconds online. I mean, if, it was, if Christian faith was just about an intellectual enterprise, you wouldn't need to gather. You'd just go and get better teaching. But the reason why it's a communal faith, and you're stuck with this guy, sorry, is because that's how the, that's how the Spirit works, does his sanctifying work. We're already past tense sanctified in Christ, but we're present tense being, it's being worked out in our hearts as we do community together. We begin to alleviate one another's burdens, caring and loving for one another. And so if you think about the, the, the flow of this letter, again, Paul's taking another shot across the bow. Because the false teaching, the false gospel, puts burdens on people. But the pure gospel is saying we will actually desire to take burdens off of people. Salvation by works puts burdens on the church. Salvation by grace makes us say, how do I alleviate alleviate burdens off of the church? How do I love and care for my neighbor, the the one here at Redeemer that need some love and, and attention. How, how, can I, how can I do that? That's where this whole thing is moving. You know, and Jesus described his burden in Matthew 11 as being easy and light. Why would Jesus describe a burden as easy and light? It's because what Jesus put on your back was his robe. That's what he put on you. He gave you a new identity. And the new identity and being united to Christ has implications. And they begin to work themselves out in this way. A desire to not further burden like the false gospel, but alleviate burden. That's the trajectory of, of what it does. But we won't be able to bear one another's burdens unless we have a gospel-based view of ourselves. Because that gospel-based view reminds me, when I was at my worst, God moved toward me. And it was God's movement towards us in grace that shaped our movements toward one another in grace. And that's the the flow that Paul is is giving here. Then in verses 3 and 4, he invites us back into that self-analysis, right? He says, hey, if someone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he's deceived. And so don't compare yourself with the people in the chairs here. You compare yourself against yourself in response of what God has given you. It's this humble self-evaluation. The first part of the letter and all of his letters, Paul talks about what God's rescuing grace is. And now he's illustrating what that is reforming grace does and enables us to live in honest examination of our own lives right without categorizing others in the church as better or worse than us so you can see now how this grace creates unity as opposed to this message of works creating disunity because if it is a message of works we'll be like those people in the gym who only work one muscle group right i I go to the gym four times a year so i know this okay so when I'm there, you'll see the guy who's, who every day seems to do bench press and shoulder press and biceps, and he never touches any machines for his legs. So he's, he's kind of shaped like the cartoon character, and you know, he's got this massive upper body, and then he's, got, he, he's on these little chopsticks. And you see these guys. When we, when we forget grace, we think our muscle group is the one. And we expect everybody else to relate the way that we do. Our strength is the best one, right? We think the most important thing in church is discipleship and growing in our theology and our doctrine. So every time there's a a study group, everybody should be at it. Those who aren't at it are subpar Christians. Well, that's not true. 
probably serve us to be at it and to grow in that way, but that's not true. Other people say, no, that doesn't matter. What matters is kids and youth. They're the future. And if you don't see that and you're not going to pour into the kids and you're not going to be a part of, of children's ministry, then you have totally missed the gospel. You have no vision for the future of Canada. You're a terrible Christian. Is that true? No. Is it true that we should be in, investing in our kids? Yes. The other person says, no, that's not it. It's hospitality. It's looking for the new person who walks in. That's the most important thing. If you don't notice that somebody new walks into Redeemer, what can I say? You're blind as a bat. You're a theological moron because hospitality, hospitality is at the heart of Christianity. You should be inviting people over for lunch. Is that true? No, it's not true that all the gifts are needed. But is it true that those things are important? They're essential. The other person says, no, you guys have missed it. It's giving. If you don't give money, the door is closed. Nobody can pay the preacher. The gospel isn't preserved. And if you're not, if you're not giving generously, then just shut the whole thing down. It's business 101. Is that true? Well, on one hand, it's, it, it, it's true because Paul said give generously in the New Testament to the church to preserve the gospel. But it's absolutely not true because that's not the main thing. When we lose sight of the gospel of grace, whatever our particular gift is, we think is the biggest one. And everybody who's not about it, it's like, what is wrong with you? Well, the thing is, God has God blessed it with beautiful diversity here, which can be celebrated and not compared. We need all of it. Right? It's the glorious mosaic of the gospel that God is using and drawing all, so that from, as the Redeemer grows, you know, as different cultures come in, different cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds and vocations, people have different art, people who, who show up here from different, with different political philosophy, will have every, every uh, political uh, flavor of political philosophy here in the church. You're all going to go to the polls and you're going to vote for different political parties, but when we come here and we gather in the house, we're major on the main thing, which is Christ alone. The thing that unifies us, what we're unified around. And so Paul says, don't think you're something, don't get deceived, don't live into this comparison, live in humble self-evaluation. That's what the gospel of saving grace will provoke in it, it's, and uh, what it'll do in all of us. And so I close with this. It's that the implications of being united to Christ is that the one who lifted off all of our burdens is inviting us into a life and a heart that desires to do the same and care and love for others and remove their burdens. It is that we, while we are at rest in passive righteousness of Christ, it propels a very active righteousness for our neighbor. The passive righteousness of Christ is that he has done it all. Nothing that you and I do for one another to care for one another has, is adding anything to the work of Christ. We live in a passive righteousness. You are accepted by God on the basis of what Christ did, period, end of sentence. Passive righteousness. That then, in the second half of all Paul's letters, liberates us, and it produces a very active righteousness that isn't vertical at all before God. It's just horizontal. It's how we love each other. It's how we love our neighbor. with No, no, no earning involved. God was willing to leave the comfort of heaven and be born into the mess of a stable to redeem us from the mess of our lives and our sin. And his saving grace is doing a sanctifying work whereby we are willing to bear the burden of the mess that's in one another's lives. And I am confident, Redeemer, that the beautiful and gracious work that God has begun in all of us, he is able to complete and he will complete in the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.